ready for true happiness, for deep fulfillment, for feeling alive, on purpose, and in control of your life again, it's time to be the bold, brilliant, beautiful woman you were born to be. Welcome to the Purpose Girl Podcast. I'm women's happiness and life purpose expert, Karen Rockhunt, and I'm going to teach you how to live on purpose, feel alive, and be happy in every aspect of life. I'm going to get real about my life and interview women who are living on purpose so that you can finally live yours. Welcome to the show. Hello, 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 my goddess. So years ago, when I was working on my master's thesis, I went out to friends and I said, who do you know that is a woman living her purpose, like fully living all out? And my friend, Lewis immediately said, you have to talk to my friend, Natalia. She is a living embodiment, walking her passion, walking her purpose. And through the years, either through a workout class called Intensati or being in love with each other from afar on Facebook, she and I have stayed in touch. And when I think of our fitness industry, in this country. And I think about a woman who is taking on a really big platform of how can we make mass change and mass improvement for all. I immediately think of Natalia. And what we're looking at in today's world, I don't know about you out there. I'm the kind of person who has signed up for gym memberships and then like ever, never, never go. Like now I don't even sign up because I know it's going to be a waste of money. I'm someone who not anymore, but when I was in middle school, got really trapped into the, I have to be skinny. I have to be skinny. I would buy those Doritos that had like the fat replacement situation, like wow, or whatever it was. And I can fall into the same patterns that we all can. The kind of marketing that has led us to a place where On the one hand, the United States, at least here in America, I know you all are listening from all over the world, is kind of obsessed with being fit. And on the other, so many Americans are living in bodies that don't feel good. They're not their healthiest selves. We do have an obesity issue. And I've just read Natalia's book, Fit Nation, and it blew my mind open. Because what she does is really point out and show us the history of the fitness culture and how we got here and how we can make changes that support and help the whole world. And so we're going to have that conversation here today. And I'm so here for it. And we're going to be talking about how she herself got clear on her own purpose and followed it, how she is creating an entire movement that I know is going to shift things for good for all. And how we in our own woman bodies can look at our own level of fitness. So let me introduce you to Natalia Melman Petrozella. She is a historian of contemporary American politics and culture, the author of Classroom Wars, Language, Sex, and the Making of Modern Political Culture from Oxford University Press and Fit Nation, The Gains and Pains of America's Exercise Obsession, University of Chicago Press. It'll be coming out in January. She's the co-producer and host of the acclaimed podcast, Welcome to Your Fantasy, from Pineapple Street Studios, and the co-host of Past Present Podcast. She's a columnist at The Observer, a frequent media guest, expert, public speaker, contributor to outlets like The New York Times, Washington Post, CNN, The Atlantic, you name it. She's also an associate professor of history at The New School, co-founder of the wellness education program, Health Class 2.0. I could go on and on and on you're just going to fall in love with her because bottom line, she's a fucking fabulous human. Natalia, welcome to the Purpose Girl podcast. Thank you so much. It's such an honor to be here. I hope I do justice to that amazing intro. You're very kind. You don't even have to say a word and you will do justice. If everybody just goes get (laughs) your book, they'll be like blown away. Thank you. So this book I didn't know really what to expect from Fit Nation, right? I got an email from you. I'm I'm coming out with a book. I'm like, oh my God, you have to come on my podcast. I didn't even know what it was about. I'm just like, I love you. Let me give you a platform to say all the things because you're somebody that I look up to as a woman truly on purpose. And as I went through pages and pages and pages, I was like, holy shit, you're not just telling us how to be fit. 
Like, that's not the point of this at all. You're not just telling us that, like, there's an issue in how we're looking at our bo- our beautiful bodies or any of that. Like, you're really pointing out that we have a public health crisis on our hands and a real issue that we can all be part of resolving. And that's big stuff, sister. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is big. It's why the, the it's a big book too. It's like <laughs> over 400 pages. But yeah, it's um I feel so honored that you are taking the time to read it and that you find that value because yeah, this is like a big problem. What is more intimate and important than our bodies and we don't have a society set up to help us care for ourselves in in this most intimate important way. And so I wanted to kind of shed light on why that is and hopefully how we can move forward too. Yeah. I mean, this is so needed. So let's talk about the kind of the current issue as you see it, right? We're like, on the one hand, we're obsessed with fitness. And on the other hand, we have more obesity, more heart conditions, more diabetes. And this is not judgment. It's more like, what is going on here? And what do we need to do? Yeah, no, that's exactly right. That's the paradox that kind of animates this whole book, right? That on the one hand, in the United States, we disagree about a lot of things, but we pretty much agree that like exercise is good for you. And we even put a kind of moral cast on that and say, if you work out, you're a good person. And the flip side of that, if you don't exercise and take care of your health, you're lazy, you're suspicious and all the rest. At the same time, as you mentioned, we have an extraordinarily unhealthy country through exercise um, participation, but a lot of other metrics too. And so one of the things that I explain in this book is how we can hold that shared belief that exercise is so important and even almost like a moral commitment. But at the same time, fitness has become yet another marker of inequality where however you measure it, whether it is like, you know, physical activity, gym members, Ship, um, etc. The more money and the more a- the more money you have, the more affluent you are, the more likely you are to be able to participate in that. And to me, like I want to understand as a historian how we got here, and then I also want to help craft the solution of how we move forward. Absolutely, I I was really blown away by that, and I want to admit my own privilege here. Right, I'm sitting here as a white woman who grew up in a fairly affluent suburb. Like I want to just acknowledge my own privilege and bias here because you really woke me up. It's not that I didn't know that a gym that's $200 a month is inaccessible. And I hadn't realized how many communities and how many people, beautiful human people, have no access to parks in their neighborhoods or to the basketball courts or to some sort of equipment. Like that blew my mind. Yeah. And I mean, that is a big through line in here that one of the reasons we have this inequality is because we've seen this explosion of the fitness industry and a contraction of public investment in fitness and recreation. So exactly what you're saying, like, you know, compared to, I think we're about the same age. I grew up, it sounds like a little similar to you. Um, And, you know, since the time when we were kids growing up in the 80s and 90s, like there's been a multiplicity of gyms and studios and YouTube channels and Instagram and all that and athleisure stores and all of these things that suggest fitness is everywhere. Okay, sure. But like when we open our eyes, we realize all of that is for sale. And not only can people who can't afford it not participate in that, but at the same time, when you look at the big kind of public policy picture, we see cutting back from physical education. We see communities where there are not safe streets or safe parks. We see the changes in the labor economy where people are working such unpredictable, like shift labor and having to commute to work that like fitting in a workout, even if you can afford it or you can get a free one, on your computer just isn't a priority. And so I'm trying to kind of shed light on that. And I think it's so, um, you know, no one should fault themselves for not understanding this beforehand, because the truth of the matter is that so much of the language that we use around fitness is so individualistic that of course we don't see it because it's like, oh, you know, you want to get fit. 
all it takes is willpower and a pair of sneakers. Like all you got to do is wake up and do those sit-ups. And to a certain extent, of course, that is true, right? Like individual motivation is integral to any fitness program. But I think what that language really dangerously obscures is how different um, the access is to be able to like fully act on your willpower, right? There are a lot of circumstances that make it harder or easier, for example, to go out for a run. The neighborhood you live in, the body you um, occupy. um, I mean, with all of our privileges that you just listed, and I, I, I have a lot of those as well, like my husband can go for a run in the morning after dark. I'm like, if it's dusk, no way. I always have my headphones turned down even in the daytime. Like it's very different. Multiply that by a neighborhood that doesn't have well-lit streets, et cetera. Um, and you have a very different kind of situation. It just makes it that much harder. It's not just individual will, it's circumstance too. Yeah. And a societal issue, right? I mean, oh, this yeah. is truly like a public issue that, you know, my time to run, I drop my son off at preschool, which I'm lucky enough to be able to afford. Let's face it, <laughs> that stuff is not cheap, right? Totally. And so, and then since I work for myself, I have the luxury. And even if I didn't, I have a partner who could watch him, let's say, and then I go for my run and I wear my sneakers that, you know, I buy a new pair of sneakers like every, I don't know, maybe two years or something just in case. And so absolutely, there is such a larger thing. Even if we just think about single mothers or single dads, but we just know that there are a lot more single moms than there are dads. When is that single mother supposed to get her exercise in? Oh, totally. And that's sort of the insidious thing. We're not set up as a culture to allow that to happen, yet we are set up as a culture to judge people for it, right? Like, oh, you don't care about your health. Like, you're lazy. You don't have your act together. You're not working out. And that to me, so just, just, I mean, insidious is not even the right word. It's like tragic. It's a moral failure. So I think we got to highlight that and fix it. A hundred percent. You know, it's interesting. I grew up in Detroit and there's no public transportation system. In Detroit, it's a massive sprawling area. I'm not talking about like in the city. There's really mm-hmm. no public transportation there either. But sprawling suburbs created because of the car industry, right? So there's never going to be public transit there. Mm-hmm. And so there isn't even opportunity to walk to a lot of places, right? When I did live in New York City, it was so different. I didn't have a car. We walked everywhere or, you know, we've lived for a month at a time in different cities in Europe and we walk everywhere. The way that our country is set up, there's not even the opportunity to get a workout in while you're in your regular every day. So I think that is really important and kind of gets us into the historical aspect of my work, which is that, you know, the whole reason that we have to have like a culture of deliberate exercise of like setting aside an hour to do that is it pretty much almost regardless of socioeconomic status. Our society is set up today not to privilege movement and exercise as aspects of everyday life, right? And that has to do with the expansion of the service economy. Like, you know, it's no accident that there have been like real upticks in the commercial fitness industry when there are expansions of white collar work. So like in the 1920s, in the 1950s, today, the whole reason that there, that it's sellable to be like, oh, come to this studio or buy these running shoes, et cetera is because the presumption is you need to like work off the sedentariness of everyday life. And I would say among blue, and that's one of the reasons why working out has actually often been the sort of like affluent um, person's activity, because if you were doing manual labor, the presumption was like, you didn't need to do this on your own time. Um, That being said, today, it's really interesting to look at like more blue collar environments, like say Amazon warehouses, et cetera. And to look at the way that this work, which is very, very physical, is not exercise in the healthy way. Like people who are working in those jobs, their bodies are totally beaten down. They have repetitive use injuries. They're standing too long. They're injured by all kinds of workplace hazards. And so that has in some ways like almost, you would hope it would galvanize a policy response, but it's actually galvanized like a kind of lower end of the fitness industry as well. That like everybody needs this because there's an assumption that everybody these jobs are kind of bad for you physically, whether you're sedentary or like getting hurt on the job. 
which really is also a statement about what the hell has happened to us with our careers. But that is maybe a, <laughs> it's kind of a separate conversation, but kind of not. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, I was fascinated to read and you talk about this early in your book that early on in you would have to tell me, is it the 20s, the 30s, whenever the dishwasher came about? Like the 50s. The yeah. 50s. OK, <laughs> so I'm totally off on my years, but you know what I'm saying, okay. that there was a lot of American pride that we're making women, women's lives easier by having this dishwasher and all these things. And the television was coming about. And so people, it's like, look at our American lives. We don't have to do anything. The dishwasher does it. We watch the TV at night. We don't even need, you know, we don't even make dinner because it comes in, you know, a frozen container. And look at American lives. Like, look what has happened. And there was a woman who predicted we were going to become less healthy by this. Bonnie Pruden, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and absolutely. So talk to us about how I'm like so enthralled that a woman who was a housewife, she had this insight. This is not good. Yes, no, absolutely. And I think first, like just to pause, like for listeners who might not be as steeped in 1950s history, but it, it really was this incredible moment in the United States. After World War II, it's the beginning of the Cold War and all of these things that are the markers of American prosperity. Like you're saying, television, washing machines, cake mix, highways, cake everyone, mix. not not everyone, but a lot of people can own a car. So like all of these things that made life easier were supposed to be symbols of like how good Americans have it, you know, as opposed to these Soviet drudges who are like working out there in the fields in the cold. But this woman, Bonnie Pruden, who lived in a bedroom community of New York in White Plains, she looked around and she realized that there were some real costs to this. She realized that kids were not playing outside as much, neither were her peers. She teamed up with this doctor who realized that there was this new thing in America, like chronic back pain that people were talking about. Like imagine a time before people had chronic back pain, right? A lot of this came from the fact that people were more sedentary. And so she really got up in arms about this as, um, you know, she'd been a dancer and she was a real outdoors woman and she was really worried about children. And so she started holding exercise classes at her daughter's elementary school. And then that grew and she created this whole like institute and Sports Illustrated profiled her, but she was really sounding this alarm about the costs of American prosperity on American bodies. She ultimately got the ear of the White House under Eisenhower. Howard and then Kennedy, but it was really hard. Like no one wanted to listen. They're like, what do you mean this like suburban lady? Like this is the good life. Chill out. It's fine. What do you know, woman? Right. And totally. I want to be clear. And you, you, you really do such a good job of this in the book. We are talking about honestly white prosperity. Like let's, let's call it what it is. It was not just American prosperity. It was prosperity for white people. And, yes. Right. Which is also stretching the the divide in terms of racism and, you know, societal racism and further separating people. You can it's like you can see it like now we can look at it in hindsight. But I can just imagine being her. And here she is, this quote unquote housewife from her, you know, upscale suburb. And she's trying to sound the alarm and people probably didn't want to listen. But how did she then get the ear of a president? That's a big yeah. deal. It's such a big deal. So pausing on that, it's such a good point that you make about racial segregation and whose bodies were thought to be like worth caring about. Yeah. And one thing that I think is really important is a lot of people, when I tell this story about Bonnie Pruden and the White House and the way JFK and Eisenhower got on board, they're like, oh, like Michelle Obama and let's move. And they're right that there are a lot of echoes there in terms of like, take care of your body and get fit as a kind of civic act. But one thing which is so, so different from the 1950s to the 2000s, thousands is like whose bodies are worth caring about. So Mm -hmm. in the 1950s, this is like seen as basically entirely a problem of affluent white suburbanites. Like people are not talking about the malnourishment or the, um, you know, bodily ills of black kids in the inner city or really of anyone else. By the time you get to the Obamas, the focus is very much on obesity um, and other issues like health related issues in black and brown communities. 
communities. And like, I think it's good when the White House pays attention to health, but I should really point out that in both of those situations, there's like a lot of fat shaming that's going on and a lot of like, you know, finger pointing, like you take responsibility for your own health. So I don't want to like overlook that. No, I'm glad. And now I'm going to buy. Yeah. And I'm glad that you said that because anything we're talking about here, the last thing that either one of us wants to do is to fat shame. This is about being healthy. Mm -hmm. Right. And and it's such a farce in our society where we think that bodies of different weights are healthy or unhealthy because we can have a quote unquote skinny body. Right. Like I, I used to like, let me just out myself. I used to think if I was skinny, I was healthy. So, oh, isn't it amazing that I have this metabolism where I can eat ice cream every day and I can eat those wow Doritos and, you know, (laughs) which I did. Let me just be honest about it. Right. And someone would look at me and think I was healthy when no, that was not that was not health. Right. Just because I looked, quote unquote, skinny. It is so backwards in our society and just pisses me off in a million ways. And okay. Yeah. (laughs) No. And that's, as you know, from the book, too, that's totally a subtext, too. Right. How we like valorize certain bodies and how we have like, sadly, this like consistent trend historically of looking at fatness as failure. Right. Failure to be fit, failure to be healthy, failure morally. So, yeah, that's definitely in here. So you asked, though, how Bonnie Pruden got the ear of the White House. Yes. So it was hard for at least two reasons. One that I alluded to, which was that all these things she was saying were problematic, were like actually the things that Americans were promoting as like so good about the United States. So that was a little awkward, especially in the Cold War when, um, you know, there was this like nobody wanted to sort of show that America was vulnerable in any way. But then the second thing that was hard in terms of her promoting fitness is that this was a very different moment when fitness did not have that positive moral virtue at all like it does today. Like back then, people who like worked out, lifted weights, did calisthenics were seen as like kind of weird. Like men who did this were like, why do these guys care about their bodies so much? Like, okay, maybe they should play sports because that's competitive and individualistic. But that this is like weird and superficial and narcissistic. Maybe Mm. they're gay if they want to hang out at the few gyms that exist. Right. And then for women, there was also this sense of like women building strength, like that's not good. And you certainly shouldn't exercise rigorously because your uterus will fall out and you can't have babies. And like, so there was all of this sort of sense that fitness was suspicious. And that's like, I hope that I like open people's eyes to that because that's like not something that's very easy to imagine from today. So she was contending with those two things. But what she did, she and a doctor collaborator, They administered this test, the Krauss-Weber exam, to American children, and they found that um, in comparison with European children, American kids um, were deficient in a variety of ways on flexibility, on strength, on general health and fitness. And they, and this is the thing that got them the years of the White House, they linked this to lack of military preparedness. They were like, we are raising a generation of children who are not going to be able to defend us if the Cold War gets hot. That for Eisenhower, a former general, is like, oh my God, we got to start paying attention. Um, so they go, there's this like lunch at the White House where, they're, where they have some um, athletes that are there and they're kind of talking, you know, in very alarmist terms, probably like too alarmist. Um, they're talking about this problem and this gets the ear of the White House. Eisenhower appoints Richard Nixon to head this committee, which becomes the Presidential Council on Youth Fitness. And they launch um, this really important program um, in order to encourage physical education in schools and in communities. And I think really importantly to notice is that that first like version of this program in the 50s was super important, but it was like very militaristic and like not fun. <laughs> like right. this was not like have fun through fitness. Right. This was like prepare to be a soldier. This wasn't dodgeball, right? This was not no. like, and it was really geared toward white men, right? Wasn't Absolutely. there a thought? Boys, yeah, boys, right white young men, right? Boys. And it was not, it was like, women don't even need this. Our girls don't need this because they're not going to be you know, on the front lines and they're... Yeah, that's exactly right. And that changes a little bit with Kennedy when Kennedy comes in and he wants to make fitness more fun. And he actually, this is notable, like, so if, and did you watch Mrs. Maisel by yeah. any chance? I was just okay. going to say, because they're in there doing their calisthenics and they're like talking to each other. Yes. 
So there's a scene where her dad is on the dock in the Catskills and they play this song, Chicken Fat, which maybe you can put in your show notes. That was like the official PE song for the JFK administration. And it's like, go, you chicken fat, go away. And it's like horribly, like, you know, it's horrible but it's like meant to be more fun and they there's this one verse where they're like girls get in there too and so it's like meant to kind of bring girls in a little bit and these programs were for girls as well but also interestingly that presidential council Kennedy drops the youth part and so he starts to promote fitness for everybody and I think that I see as an important kind of symbolic move in like this isn't just for kids in PE class everybody needs to start caring about this so JFK is important for a lot of ways like he wants to be more inclusive he also wants to make fitness seem kind of like more fun and he's a really good poster boy for that because he's young and he's attractive and you know he swam when he was at Harvard that being said you know we know that privately he suffered with incredible health problems and was like on painkillers all the time but he was like kind of a fitfluencer early on like there are pictures of him playing tennis in Palm Beach and Hyannis and just making fitness look fun there's this this event, which is like so forgotten, but I think is so interesting, where he challenges Robert F. Kennedy, his brother, to do this 50-mile hike. And they he sets out with people and they're like traipsing through the woods. And it ends up setting off like these challenges all over the place of like people doing these long hikes and walks. And so, you know, there's a lot there, but I think he's really important in like trying to promote fitness as something that's not just for kids and not just military and kind of aspirational and part of your civic duty. And I do, though, want to add as well, though, that like the phrase, which he's often associated with, which shows how judgy this um, approach was, is the soft American. Mm -hmm. He wrote this whole article in um, uh, Sports Illustrated when he was president-elect, about to come in December 1960, and he talks about how the soft American, who's flabby of body and like soft of mind, is like one of the biggest threats facing. America today. And so just think about how terrible that is in terms of kind of encoding a sort of fat hatred into American policy and civic duty, right? Now you're fat. It's not just like you can't run as fast. It's like you're a threat to national security. Like, thanks a lot, JFK. Thanks a lot. I have to tell you, I looked up, I Googled soft American while Mm -hmm. reading your book. And what actually comes up now is more about being weak on military policy more hmm. it's much more alive the first few google hits were in alignment with more liberal progressive thinking which mm-hmm. anyone who listens to my show knows that i am right and so it's just interesting that that militaristic piece stayed i think around soft versus hard, hard american yeah so that was just because i wanted to read more about it i thought that was really interesting and fascinating and the phrase I think has shifted in terms of its meaning, but maybe always going back to that military perspective, that strong man, you know, patriarchal perspective. I just thought that was. Yeah. You hear a lot kind of like conservatives, like wanting to like own the libs as like softies, right. Right. Or being too feminine. And that sometimes refers to like a hard body, which is like what JFK was explicitly referring to, but of course it was so powerful because it had all of those associations of softness being weakness, which live on today, but you're right, in somewhat different form. Right. It's just really, the evolution is interesting. Totally. So fast forward to now. So because here we're talking about, what, 60 years ago, this Mm -hmm. seven, I have to add up my numbers, but really being a priority. And there have been advancements we have to take PE class, and that's the first thing that's taken away, right, when there's no budget. Yeah. And sports mm-hmm. are taken away. And you could tell us, has the issue gotten any better? Because it doesn't seem like it does. It has, right? If we look at, like, American health statistics and cardiovascular disease and all of these different things, these different measures, it doesn't look like it's gotten any better. 
Yeah, no, it's such a great question. And, you know, I, as a historian, like I always tell my students, like I caution against like golden age thinking like, oh, it was so great back then if we could go there or um, kind of like straight progress narratives. Like today Mm. we have achieved perfection. The battle days were so terrible. It's often, it's always pretty much like much more complicated than that. Like there are fits and starts and gains, gains and pains, if you will. (laughs) That's the subtitle of my book. (laughs) Yeah, but also the subtitle title of my book, right? (laughs) So um, one of the things that I think really is important to emphasize first about like the so-called good old days of PE and kind of national investment in that is that one, as we were just talking about, like the ideology underlying this federal support of physical education was like pretty problematic and flawed, right? It was just about like military preparedness. It like totally vilified um, fat kids. It, um, you know, excluded girls and disabled people and like not to mention a lot of people of color. Like it was pretty problematic. And whenever I do interviews with people about who lived through that era, like so many of them are like, I was traumatized (laughs) by the JFK presidential fitness test, etc. So that is an important contribution, I think, because a lot of people like there are there was just recently a whole documentary made that says that like, that was the golden age, and we have to go Mm. back to it. And I'm like, "Mm, Mm. I don't know about that. Even if you thought it was such a great set of programs, it's also important to realize it was mostly like a marketing campaign. Like there wasn't a huge investment in infrastructure. And that's really important too. Like, yes, JFK and Eisenhower, like they created all these conferences and they would go to local communities. They had like celebrity people and some of that still exists. But a lot of it was like trying to encourage communities to spend their own money to do stuff. Like there wasn't a lot of actual investment behind that. So All of that, I think, is relevant information there. Yeah. One thing that I do think is generally good, if I have to go in the good-bad dichotomy framework, is, you know, connecting, like, articulating the idea that access to fitness should be a matter of public policy. Like, that's really important. Like, and that, I think, is really good. And that, with the exception probably of Donald Trump, has been a bipartisan idea, like, since Eisenhower and JFK. Like, it's almost like uncontroversial. Almost every president is like, hey, I like to work out and I think everybody else should do. And they don't necessarily always do something about it, but it's like considered to be positive, yeah, like right? Moving your body is good. That exactly. Is, it's not really and that it's something controversial. That- Yeah, and it's something that like we should promote, right? Like that's not usually a culture wars issue. Trump really did kind of make it so, but um, I think we've we're kind of correcting on that. Um, So I do think it's gotten better in the sense that like I think it was really terrible in like the early 20th century when exercise was seen as suspicious, when people who wanted to do this were seen as like not normal or weird, when you know girls were like totally excluded from fitness culture for a whole variety of of reasons reasons. I think it's actually really good that we have a kind of fitness and movement culture, which has expanded for over a hundred years and which allows a lot of people to like move and exercise on their own terms, which I think is really important. What I think is a tragedy, shame, and is terrible is that the best versions of this, not all, but a lot of them tend to be very exclusive, tend to exist on a kind of private market, and that there's been just this expansion of this industry without an expansion of the industry and an expansion of the idea that exercise is good and just no commensurate public investment. So, I can't say it's gotten better or worse across the board. I think it really depends who you are. But I think that like the paradox or the, yeah, the paradox, I guess, or the contradiction between what we say we profess, we believe, and what we actually do has gotten really extreme. And that I find kind of morally reprehensible, but I'm hoping that at some moment there will be enough cognitive dissonance. Like I want to be like Bonnie Pruden and go to the White House and shake the policymakers and say, look, how can you say this and not support this with policy? Like most people would agree, this is a good use of funds. So let's go. Natalia, I'm reading the book and going, she's going to the White House. I, it's like, <laughs> I see it. It's so evident to me because what you're doing is you are highlighting a problem that I know more of us should immediately see a gap, but we don't. Like, let's just be honest, right? Because everybody's in their own worlds and thinking about their own like job or kids or aging parents or whatever it is. And you are pointing out 
a massive gap in caring for our citizens. Yeah, I think that that's, I'm, thank you for saying it that way. I mean, I think that that's really important. And, you know, one of the things like beyond this project, but just as like a historian that I'm so interested in is like, you know, looking at aspects of people's everyday lives and kind of understanding why they're more important than just like the food you eat or the workout you do, et cetera. And I think that you're absolutely right that like people often, as much as people think about exercise as part of like their own self-care or their own daily routine, we don't often think about fitness as a social justice issue. And I think that is a real problem. And I think that one of the things I hope to do with this book is say, Fitness is a social justice issue. We have to think about this the way we think about food justice or education or housing. Um, these things are all connected. And one of the things, you know, um, in your very kind intro, you mentioned that I um, started this program, Health Class 2.0, which I don't run anymore, but we were doing quote unquote experiential wellness education in um, public schools. And one of the things that I found, like, you know, notable, let's say, is that you know, I would talk to administrators, principals, et cetera, who would say things that I feel and I hear all the time, which are like, I like couldn't survive without my yoga class or like my Zumba people are my community, like my ride or die. And yet they were like, I don't really know if we have room in the curriculum to do this wellness thing. I'm like, really? I'm like, yeah, I'm like, you see how important this is in your own life. And trust me when I tell you, I am like the most like academic person there. Like, I'm not saying this should replace math or English or anything else, but I do believe any kind of comprehensive, holistic educational experience has got to incorporate a kind of, you know, movement and fitness aspect to it and not the old PE, which is like punitive and shaming, but right. something new. Like we have seen progress in that there are amazing programs out there and those deserve to be more publicly available. A thousand percent. And we can make an academic argument for it because we yeah. know that a brain on movement thinks better, more expansively, is more alert, more attuned. We know that you're creating all sorts of healthy hormones in your brain when you're actually in movement. You know, the there's that scientist who does the brain rules for babies and kids. John Medina, Brain Rules. And he okay. does this these short videos. They're, you know, they're a little mm -hmm. dated in terms of they, maybe they were like the 80s or 90s, but whatever. But he does these short little videos. And one of them I will remember forever is about kids' brains on exercise, like on movement, and kids' brains sitting in a classroom. And he then also gets into adult brains in a beige cubicle versus adult brains walking to the beige cubicle. And it's like, you you look at it, check this out, Natalia, because it will make will. your point so well of just like, wait, let's make the actual connection that we do better at academics. We do better with conversation. We do better with emotional regulation. We do better with focus. We do better with everything. We're more successful when our bodies are in movement versus being sedentary. A thousand percent. And I mean, I think that this gets back so much to this false dichotomy between mind and body that certainly governs much of our educational system, but for a long time kind of governed a lot of our lives, which, you know, certainly in, in, in education, there's this sense of like, oh, well, it's like this sort of soft, like movement and wellness stuff versus the hard academics. But, you know, I go back to educational theorist John Dewey writing in the early 20th century, talking about the importance of integrating these two things and how if we only see the body as something to be disciplined in order to learn, we lose out on what happens when we actually activate and engage the body as part of that yes. intellectual learning process. And to me, I don't always live this. I lecture sometimes, right? Like I'm a college professor, but it's always on my mind of how much we can do better at everything yes. when we do better at like each of these pieces. Like they work together. Absolutely. I mean, I notice when I'm on a run, I get new ideas, right? It's yeah. It's just part of it. And I think you point out something so genius, though, which is we look at fitness, though, as individualistic. Have totally. I worked out today or not? Do I, I haven't had time or I don't have the willpower? And what we're talking about here is systemic. Mm -hmm. And anything that's systemic means that, unfortunately, has meant that we've been leaving people out and that we need to be more inclusive, that we've got a public health challenge. And I want to know how you got became so passionate about this. 
Yeah. So, okay. So I'll give you the short version of this, but I growing up as a kid was not athletic at all. I was totally bought into this like mind body dichotomy. And I was like terrified of the sports kids. And, you know, in the nineties for girls, it was like sports or dance. And like both of those things seemed very exclusive. I was worried about being humiliated, but I also was like, well, at least I have this good brain. Like my body's just this thing that like carries me around. Right. Like, I guess this just is what it is. You and I anyway, are like the I same was... human. Yes. <laughs> and I was like, can I get my period every day so I can get out of gym class? <laughs> okay, this is the next part of my story. So that's so funny. So not my period, but I was so like over PE. One, I was like very academic. I'm like, I want to take another class or like have another study hall or something. But also I was really intimidated, not even by what we were doing in class, but we had to pull ourselves up on these bleachers to like sit and I wasn't strong enough. And I was like, oh my God, I'm like huffing and puffing. Like it it is so embarrassing. So I look in my student rights and responsibilities manual and it says you can take an independent study in PE. And I'm like, I wonder what that is. So I go and I get approved. I'm like the only person in the history of the school, I think to do it at that point. And they said, well, it has to be supervised. So you can get a personal trainer or you can go to a group fitness class. And I didn't know what these were. And I go home. My mom is like, personal training is for rich people. Like, we're not going to do that. Um, But we belong to the JCC, the Jewish Community Center, and they have these workout classes. So I'm like, anything is better than PE. I go to take this step class. I was like the youngest by half at like age 16. (laughs) But slowly but surely, I'm like, I freaking love this. Like, this is a form of movement and like rigorous exercise I adore. And I can deliberately kind of cultivate my body and my strength in the same way that I study for a test or write an essay. And like, I freaking love it. And to be quite honest, like as it, you know, being a 16 year old girl in the nineties, like it got a little out of control. And I was like, I'm going to go to three classes and not go to dinner. And I stopped being hungry when like I start working out. So like definitely it had a darker side. And I do go into that kind of thing in in the um, book too. But this sort of activated this sense in me that like, there's something here that I love. I want it to be part of my life. So for the next I don't know, decade or so, I kind of had like this funny just hobby, which wasn't so common back then. Like I was sort of like a gym rat in a moment when that wasn't so common for, you know, a girl going to an Ivy League school pursuing a PhD. I worked the front desk at gyms in New York in college in order to get access to classes. I actually like took the certification exam, though I didn't do anything with it for a while, moved to California for grad school, ran marathons. So I was like getting into this. Um, all the while pursuing my doctorate as um, a historian. And so one of the things that happened around the time I met you actually is that I had gotten certified in this class in Tansati that we both you know, um, know. And to me, it was a huge deal because... I love the fitness world, but I always felt kind of guilty as a feminist because it was so obviously like body shaming. And I'm like, I love the way it makes me feel, but like, why do I love that this person is telling me to like work off the sin of my chocolate cake and bikini seasons around the corner? And like, I felt bad. Like, I remember I was TAing feminist studies and like hiding my little aerobics outfit to go to class. And then I found Intensanti when I moved back to New York and I was writing my dissertation. And this is this practice with affirmations and positivity. And it was just as fun and powerful and sweaty as these classes I loved, but with none of the like misogynistic self-hatred. So I'm like, damn it, I'm getting certified. Yes. As we were talking about before got certified and like I felt like I was doing better at writing my dissertation, which was not about this. This was about my educational policy thing, which became my first book. Um, And one of the things that when we talk about finding purpose and passion, one of the things that happened is I was concluding my doctorate. And also at that point, I was teaching like 10 intensity classes a week. I was an ambassador for Lululemon. Like it was like really an exciting time to be doing this in New York is that people in the fitness world kept being like, this is your calling. Like, you're really good at this. You should quit. Like, you know, be all the platitudes, like follow your bliss. Like, why are you doing this like old thing of like following this path to get your doctorate? And whereas I do appreciate that like adventurous thinking and like, I do think we should break boundaries. Like I kind of knew in my heart That is not right. Like, I don't want to be teaching 20 classes a week. And also, like, I love this, but I'm not going to, I'm not like a dancer or like, that's not for me. And so 
I kind of operated on two paths for a while where I'm like, I'm not giving this up because people were like, now you're done with grad school. You have a real job. You have a baby. Like you can let go of that little fitness habit. And I'm like, hell no, no. I'm not letting go of it. But I want to find a way to integrate it with my work as a scholar and a historian and a storyteller and an activist. And so the first thing that came out of that was in about 2012, where I was still like kind of deep in like educational policy uh, research and activism. And I created that program, Health Class 2.0, which we brought into schools. And then out of that, I'm like, you know, I just was like spending time in the gym and looking around. I'm like, here is this place that's like really powerful in good and not so good ways. And there aren't really a lot of scholars who take it seriously. So what would happen if I sort of turned my scholarly lens on this space that I love, but I love the way you love a complicated relative. And like, here we are. So that was, I mean, really, I started really thinking this through. I mean, Health Class 2.0 was probably founded, that was the school's program in like 2012. So it's basically a decade ago of like germination and research and writing. And that's a really long way to say it. But you know, that's kind of how it happens. I love this so much for many reasons, one of which is so many of us are multi-passionate, right? We have like all these things that we love and yeah. we don't want to give one up. And I have long thought and said that the real magic comes when you put these things together in a way that no one else has. Exactly. It's like there were no computers until there was a first computer scientist, right? So it's like you've mm -hmm. got to put the things together and that's where the real innovation is. And that's why I know you're going to the White House. And that's why it's like, because these are the, it's like, right, each one of us, it's putting our own like mark and passion into it. And it's so incredible. And this book is so well researched. I am just like, I don't even understand. It feels to me like you've been researching it for 30 years. And I know it's a decade, but it's like, because you're so thorough. Okay, so Natalia, I could talk to you forever. We're basically <laughs> at time. So I do like to do this thing called a purpose power play round. I'm going to ask you just like two random questions. Whatever's the first thing that comes to your mind, we'll do a really short one. You down? Sure. Let's see. Okay. <laughs> one word that you want each of us to take from our conversation? Activated. Ooh, that's juicy. Okay, I'm going to ask you <laughs> another one. When you were a little girl, what did you want to be? French. Oh, let's say très sexy. Très, très, très. Do you speak French now? Mais oui, pas très bien, mais j'y oh, say. Wait, and you just lived there for a little while, didn't you? Like, you're yeah. And it was, I was actually teaching there. It was in 2018, which seems like a long time ago. But yes, we lived there for a semester, almost a year actually with my family. Oh, it's so amazing. Do you see how the pandemic makes it seem like, wasn't that just five minutes ago? Right. Because time like. Tell me about right? it. And I had the, a baby in, the, in that meantime. All right. Last question. For Congrats. You. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, so, well, no, I'm going to ask you one more. Other than your books, which I'm telling you, everybody go get Fit Nation as soon as it comes out. Thank it's you. so good. Get the pre-order. You can pre-order on all the places right now, Amazon and Barnes and Noble and and hopefully your local bookstores, because that's the best place to get anything. What is a book that's really influenced you in your life and your work? There are so many books that have really influenced me that it's really hard to, to pin one down. Um, but I would say on this topic... There's a wonderful book called The Body Project by historian Joan Jacobs Brumberg. The subtitle is An Intimate History of American Girls. It came out in the 90s. So like there are aspects of it, which you'll be like, this is so 90s. But really, it's such a beautiful work of history and storytelling, because what she does is she looks through about 100 years of girls' diaries and the way that they write about their bodies. Oh and through that, draws all these interesting analytical conclusions the, about the way that bodies for girls have evolved to become like a totally all-consuming project, but the forms of that project have looked different over time. And, you know, that book, it's, there should be a new edition out because it's like doesn't even get close to like the Instagram age. But that book was really influential to me when I discovered it in early grad school, possibly late college, I knew about it because I was like, okay, this is the kind of work that I'm really interested in doing. You know, it's deeply sourced. It's like um, rooted in a kind of understanding 
understanding of historical context and all the rest, but it's very gripping. It's very accessible. And it tells the story of everyday experience in this intimate way, right? The body in a way that sheds light on these big picture issues. And so it's funny, I haven't thought about that book for a while, but recently I've been doing interviews like this and I'm like, you know, if I had to pick one, I think that kind of like Mm. set me on a journey. So I've never met the author, but I might have to just reach out to her. A hundred and thousand, ten percent. It sounds so good. I'm putting it on my list. Okay, last question. Sure. What is one thing you want every woman to know? Ooh. Okay. Um, You might be able to have it all, but you can't have it all at once. Mm. And I say that because we, you know, that discourse has gone away a little bit, but there's a lot of like, she has it all, or how does she do it all? And sometimes, honestly, not that I live this like perfect life, but people are like, you do so much. How do you do it all? And I do feel like I do a lot and I have some like, you know, life hacks for another day of how I do that. But it's so clear to me that there are always trade-offs and that at moments when I'm like nailing it and hitting my writing deadlines and honestly writing about fitness, Sometimes I don't work out for like three days, like, you know, or like, you know, the other day I went, took this whirlwind trip to Los Angeles to do this media thing. And it was like really exciting, but you know what? I had to miss Halloween. And mm. my daughter was like, it's totally cool. It's fine. But I'm like, they're on the plane. Like, oh yes, I did this, but I'm looking at these pictures on Instagram and I'm like, you know what? I missed that. Like yeah. I'm never getting that Halloween back. And I'm not even saying I regret it because right. I think, you know, there's a lot of like guilting about like, oh, you, you'll, you, you know, you can always do a work thing, but you'll never get that back. And some, sometimes that's the way to think. But I think it's just really important to realize like you cannot have it all at once and to be really deliberate about the choices that you're making. And Sometimes that is the trick-or-treating, and sometimes it's not. And I think, you know, like both of those choices can be okay, and only you know, and you've got to listen to your own voice to figure that out. Mm, 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 mm. So profound. So profound. And be okay with whatever decision you make. Yeah, I think so. So good. So good. Yeah, and you can always decide again, but regret is often a useless emotion. You can decide again tomorrow. You can decide something new. You can apologize. That's a big thing I've learned, like a difference from my childhood. I mean, I think we're all probably, you know, as we age, like seeing ourselves and our moms in some ways in good and bad ways. And one thing that I have tried to do, which is not my childhood experience, is like, apologize. Like I get angry. I make mistakes. Like, but I apologize to my kids. I explain what my thinking was. I say, I'm sorry, I'm going to do better. Like, you know, and that's, um, not something that I experienced growing up. So I'm trying to do better But I am like, well, actually I experienced my mom kind of over apologizing a lot. I'm I'm sorry. Like she was kind of an over apologizer, but not in the way of like me really understanding young that it's okay to make mistakes. It's kind of a different Mm. thing. You know, like how women unfortunately too often are like oh i'm sorry that i'm i'm present <laughs> you know i'm sorry I oh exist. my gosh yeah. always so with my students kind of, right? yeah i'm sure you see it anyway natalia you're amazing i love you to pieces Likewise. thank you let's get this book everywhere 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 i'm telling you all go pre-order go to your local bookstore ask them to carry it ask them to bring it in it's uh, it really I mean, I read it in a few days. Hundreds of pages just went by very quickly, and it's fascinating. So, Natalia, thank you. Thank you so much. This was so fun, and I just appreciate you so much. Mm, Likewise, likewise. Everyone out there, we hope you loved this episode as much as we love doing it. If so, go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Leave your five-star review. It literally takes you 10 seconds. Go do it now. That is how women all over the world find this podcast, and that's how we change the world one woman at a time. Share this broadly with your moms, your sisters, your colleagues, everyone. Of course, go on over to Facebook and join the Purpose Girls Facebook group. Follow Natalia in all the places so that you can stay up to date. We have it all in the show notes. And with that, my love, may you live purposefully. May you love yourself and may you love life. Bye for now.